what it means for the homeland security community is that, you know, homeland security, unlike most people think, is not just about counterterrorism. It's not just about the borders. It's about preparedness and resilience. It is the week of January 24th, and welcome to episode 115 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Carmen Medina, NSI Advisory Board member and former Deputy Director of Intelligence at the Central Intelligence Agency. Rob Walker, Visiting NSI Fellow and Executive Director of the Homeland Security Experts Group. Jamil Jaffer, NSI Founder and Executive Director director and former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Lots of intriguing news last week. We're going to focus on two items that are a little bit out of the spotlight. First, the Russian government said it dismantled the hacker group known as Our Evil and arrested several of its members. And in the Pacific Ocean, a massive volcano eruption disrupted life on the island nation of Tonga in some surprising ways. First, let's talk about the volcano, Hunga Tonga Hunga Ha'a'apai, the eruption of which earlier this month was the biggest explosion on the planet in over 20 years. Carmen, volcano eruptions, uh, you know, are always dramatic and spectacular. What's intriguing to you about this one? Well, let me just tell you a few things that I think are really interesting about this. And the punchline is that the earth is a is a circular, largely closed system. And it's, uh, particularly when we're making strategic decisions, it's not obvious exactly what's going to happen next. So uh, the explosion is very large. Some people are arguing, the scientists, as to how large it is. And sort of the immediate impact that such a large explosion has is that it creates clouds and, and blocks a lot of the sunlight and can briefly make the earth cooler. That's not the interesting story. The interesting story in terms of climate change is that an explosion like this emits a lot of minerals into the air. And the key mineral here is iron. When iron exists in the atmosphere as fine dust, it leads to phytoplankton blooms. So for example, those horrible Australia wildfires of uh, two years ago plus, they actually led to a huge phytoplankton bloom in the oceans. And the reason why phytoplankton blooms are important is that they suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And there are some scientists who believe, reputable scientists, that the reason why we had a little ice age uh, in the medieval era is that uh, there had been some sorts of volcanic explosions that created this iron in the atmosphere, which is what the phytoplanktons need to bloom. There are usually phytoplankton blooms in the South Atlantic because of the prevailing winds off the Sahara bring steady mineral dust to uh, nourish the phytoplankton. But it's rare to have, like the Australia wildfires, this, this huge impact. So what I think is intriguing about it, you know, climate change is a national security concern. And a lot of things that we think are horrible for or the result of the horrible consequences of climate change, like the Australian wildfire, have actually had a really interesting beneficial impact down the road. So I think the implications for it are, you know, to say something kind of woo-woo, is the earth beginning to heal itself? You know, the Gaia hypothesis. Uh, At a minimum, I think for me, it tells us that when we're trying to engineer 
a better climate and fix uh, the problems with climate change, we have to be a little bit more humble because the earth operates in ways that we don't quite understand. And finally, I would just say from the perspective of warning, because we have one of these volcanoes in the United States called Yellowstone National Park, I'm a little concerned that there appeared to be so little warning about this explosion. Uh, and I just think that it should give everybody pause. Uh, Carmen, I'm, I'm no geologist, uh, but I did read a science book once and the uh, the volcano under Yellowstone is a super volcano that explodes approximately once every 600,000 years. And it's been 630,000 years since it last went off. So it does seem like we might be due. Is, is, and I don't mean to be flip about an important issue like climate change and volcanoes. Uh, and I don't want to earn the wrath of Gaia or anyone else. But uh, is, is there... Is there something proactive uh, humanity can do here in this regard, or is it um, is it is the lesson here just humility? I actually do think the lesson here is just humility because you know for, well first I think the consequences of this volcano need to be studied carefully. So and it's going to take two to three years for it, if not more, for it to become apparent what the real consequences are for the climate, for example. Uh, so we need to study it and learn from it. But I think the ultimate thing is that we need to be humble and realize that our understanding of how the planet works is actually not as sophisticated as we think it is. Jamil, you're a good Californian, and uh, congratulations to you on your, your LA Rams remaining in the playoffs. We're all, we're all happy for you. Uh, Thrilled. Yeah, maybe we should burn your home state down, though. Listen, it's, it's doing a good enough job burning its own self down, so I'm not really worried about that. You know, California's always been the land of uh, fires, floods, and, uh, and, and earthquakes, and, uh, and uh, this season has been no, has been no, uh, no change to that. The fires have been terrible, um, and uh, it's concerning, obviously. But, hey, two California teams in the NFC Championship game, so we'll take it. A rematch so, of the final final season final, final game of the season, which we lost unfortunately. We we the Rams. We, we the LA you're, my you're on the team. team. You're on the team. My you're on the team. team. Uh, all right, Jamil. Let's get back to Hunga Tonga Hunga Haapai, the volcano that exploded. One of the other things that happened, interestingly, was that the undersea cable connecting uh, the massive uh, archipelago known as Tonga which is a relatively small human population, but uh, dozens or hundreds of, of islands, uh, it cut the undersea cable to that country, effectively cutting it off from uh, the, rest of, the rest of the world in terms of communications. What other implications are there here for this volcanic explosion? Well, you know, I mean, I think that's a, obviously this uh, submarine cable thing is a huge issue. Um, 95% of the world's data travels along the 400 plus submarine cables around the globe that total about 800,000 miles. Uh, of, of fiber optic cable. Um, so it's obviously a huge concern. Um, you know, that this was the one connection that Tonga had to the outside world in terms of its internet connectivity. Uh, you know, these cable cuts are not unusual. 70% of the damage that typically takes place to these things uh, is the result of, you know, fishing vessels alike. And we've seen prior uh, situations where uh, cables have been interfered with uh, by uh, natural disasters. Um, you know, uh, a, a few years back, there was uh, another earthquake in the Philippines. Uh, the Philippine Sea, which caused uh, the cut of a number of six out of seven cables uh, that cut off a significant flow of data between Southeast Asia um, and other parts of, of that region. Um, but obviously, these things can be really troubling, particularly when they're intentionally done. Just back in, in uh, November of last year, uh, the Norwegian undersea surveillance system that was designed there uh, to address climate change issues, but had the ability to potentially detect Russian subs 
uh, two of its uh, its core stations were, all of a sudden were were moved from their normal places. The cables had been cut. Um, not clear what had happened. No no evidence, no proof that the Russians uh, had intentionally done this. But uh, you know there is a Russian ship that that uh, the U.S. has uh, suggested um, or that reports have suggested uh, can cut undersea cables with its uh, its uh, its uh, roaming vehicles, its small subs that it has uh, that have grappling arms. So uh, obviously a concerning thing, showing our reliance on these undersea cables uh, for global internet connectivity, the importance of them uh, to the global uh, connected internet. So, uh, you know, natural disasters, certainly a problem, even more concerning what happens when intentional action happens uh, that, that cuts off access to these undersea cables. Rob, uh, I'm interested in your perspective uh, from a, from kind of a homeland security standpoint. I mean, I, I think most Americans read story about a volcano erupting in Tonga. First of all, they're not even really sure where Tonga is. It is, by the way, uh, several hundred miles off the east coast of Australia in the southern Pacific, if, if folks are wondering where Tonga is. Um, but I think folk, most folks realize, oh, volcano, those are kind of interesting. Tonga, never really heard of it. Uh, this is not really a national security issue for us, but there are these, you know, global warming, climate change, uh, our information security may be implicated here. What's your, what's the view in the in the homeland security community about something, uh, an event like this that is pretty far flung, but may actually end up having some profound impacts on us? Yeah, so it, it is pretty far flung. Um, for more geographical reference, the closest U.S. territory is American Samoa, another thousand miles or so from where the volcano went off, maybe closer, sorry. Um, it, you know, I, I think back to your question about, you know, your, your point about Yellowstone, um, remind people too, that there are many other volcanoes in the U.S. Uh, the Aleutian Islands are loaded with them. The island of Hawaii, the big island, is sitting on top of two large ones, and just off of its east coast is, an, is a volcano that will be even larger uh, that we know the current Volcanoes National Park one to be. Um, so there there are possibilities that, you know, the Pacific Ring of Fire is heating up. Um, you know, this happens from time to time, and it, it's just what the Earth does, right? Things move. Uh, the, the mantle uh, shifts the crust, and, uh, and, and you get volcanoes and, and uh, seismic activity, et cetera. What it means for the homeland security community uh, is that, you know, Homeland Security, unlike most people think, is not just about counterterrorism. It's not just about the borders. Uh, it's about preparedness and resilience. And if we are prepared for the overdue eruption of the supervolcano under Yellowstone, uh, we will have a more resilient community. You're right. We cannot be prepared for that luster. <laughs> yeah, we are not prepared. We are not clear. prepared. Um, so let, let, let's scale that down to, say, an eruption of, uh, you know, a, a Mount St. Helens again. Right. Uh, there will be a local uh, disaster. It will be, you know, it will be covered highly. It will be um, traumatic for those in the immediate area. But the country will be able to uh, work beyond that because we have built in resiliency into a lot of our communities. Uh, we're the most generous nation on earth to keep that in mind. So as a matter of national security, we are and should be um, flowing aid towards the people of Tonga right now. And thankfully, it wasn't uh, the, the, the volcano is not on one of its populated islands. Uh, in fact, I invite people to go look up uh, some of the satellite photos before and after. Um, it, it's on a the, the, the volcano is on a relatively or if not entirely deserted island which until about five years ago were two separate islands. And now uh, after this most recent eruption, 
it is again two separate islands. It was an undersea eruption more than anything. It caused much of the cone that was above the surface of the water to sink. Uh, so it's 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 amazing. Back to your comment about or your question about you know should this be a, a moment of humility? Uh, it's it's amazing to see that. Uh, a mass of land like that just disappeared inside of this 10 minute eruption. But, you know, what, back to the point about Homeland Security, though, it, it's really about um, readiness, resiliency, uh, and preparedness. And, you know, we've got to acknowledge that even within our own communities and our, our own nation here, we've got to be prepared for natural disasters uh, such as earthquakes, volcanoes, fires, et cetera, um, and start building that resiliency into all of our plans. Uh, it, you know, it, from our infrastructure to our budgets to um, our own personal lifestyles and what we choose to uh, to hold in reserve at home. Jamil, China, uh, U.S. Uh, global competitor, great power competition. We don't normally think of Tonga as one of the issues in the in the bilateral relationship with China, uh, and yet China owns two thirds of Tonga's national debt. Should we be concerned about that? Is there is there an issue here with uh, our our global competition with our near peer competitor in Beijing? Well, look, as a general matter, uh, the Chinese uh, acquisition of debt of nations around the globe, uh, particularly our own debt, the United States sovereign debt, uh, but also uh, the debt of nations throughout the globe, whether it's in Asia or in Africa or the like, um, is a hugely problematic one. It gives the Chinese outsized influence over those nations and their foreign policies, as does, by the way, uh, their, uh, their giving away of all sorts of, quote unquote, free infrastructure of the like. Nothing is for free, uh, not, from, not from us, not from anyone, particularly not from China. Uh, which engages in all sorts of extraordinary practices, including bringing its own labor in uh, to these countries to build the, 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 the capacity that they're now offering for free. Oftentimes, uh, those, those, uh, those deals come with long-term loans that when they're defaulted upon, uh, the Chinese get that infrastructure for themselves. They have to use that infrastructure, by the way, to also take out minerals, other resources and the like uh, for their own benefit. And then, uh, interestingly enough, those those roads and those infrastructure that they built tend to collapse over time. They don't tend to be the most the best built capabilities in the long run either. And so, you know, look, the Chinese are going around the globe buying influence, whether it's through purchase of sovereign debt or use of their, uh, as, as Rob pointed out, uh, the use of their donor status uh, that we also do. Um, but uh, we tend to both look at our own national interests, but also are trying to build capable operating entities uh, and operating countries overseas, uh, engaging this development mission. The Chinese are largely there for extractive purposes. And that's the reality situation. And the question becomes, how do we get countries like Tonga, our friends in Africa and other nations to really understand this and grapple with it when so much money is on offer at such low rates, if any, uh, from the Chinese government. And that is the enduring challenge for American foreign policy, particularly at a time when the American people aren't particularly interested in spending a lot of money on foreign aid. So what I would say, too, is remember that China and Australia have been having quite a, uh, an argument over the last two or three years, and Australia's really been standing up to China. I, I bet you, I didn't look it up, but I bet you that Australia and New Zealand represent almost all of the diplomatic presence in Tonga. So, you know, in terms of sticking it to the Australians a little bit, building soft power, being seen to be responsive to the needs of these smaller countries that nevertheless have the same vote in the UN, for example, as, as we do. I can see where China might look for an opportunity to build its soft power portfolio and take a stab at Australia. I, I just did a map recon, 550 miles between Tonga and American Samoa. So I want to make sure I correct the record there. Thank you. So really, Tonga is closer to America uh, than Washington is to Dallas. Tonga so is closer is to not- America than Honolulu is to the mainland. 
right? Uh, so it's uh, it's practically in our backyard. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's turn to the second issue we are going to discuss today, which is uh, this Russian hacker group, Our Evil. Everyone will recall they held hostage uh, the colonial pipeline here in the U.S. and extorted money out of the pipeline. There was some U.S. law enforcement action against them. Now it appears that the Russian government has has claimed that they have ended our evil and have arrested its members. Rob, I know you've been tracking the story. What what do you make of this announcement coming out of Russia from a few days ago? So I have to rewind a bit and remind us that in October, we, we the U.S. government, DOJ predominantly, effectively took our evil offline. So I'm wondering if this is not a daily dollar short on the Russian part. I, I sort of am congratulatory to them for thank you, you know, going out and actually arresting people and putting them in prison for the cyber crimes that they're committing. But I I am very skeptical as to the timing of this. Uh, It goes along with their buildup in Ukraine. You know, we spent the past uh, several weeks, multiple podcasts talking about what the, what Vladimir Putin's um, eyes are on Ukraine. I'm just extremely skeptical at this point. I mean, our evil was indeed evil. And, you know, thank you for taking some of those players off of the chessboard for the time being. I don't understand what the motivations are at this point. Uh, You see some people championing the idea that Russia will no longer be a safe haven for cyber criminals on the dark web. Um, I would defer more to someone who has a bit more insight into that, like Jamil, and wonder, what are you seeing at Ironnet? (laughs) We're all all laughing, Jamil. Go ahead. Yeah. So, A, A, uh, news for our podcast listeners. I am now a member of the Ironnet Advisory Board, but am no longer uh, in my full-time job there as I am thinking about what I might do with the rest of my life when I grow up. Um, But I'll tell you this, Rob, um, there is no question that they're that the russians have turned the page on cyber crime or cyber hacking or cyber offense and are now going to come around to the view and become a good actor in the world and, and be much better that's a joke right uh this is simply uh vladimir putin uh taking out some of his own people and saying hey i'm gonna make you you guys are gonna pay the price the price quote unquote for this one so we can try and make nice with, with joe biden and say hey joe we gave you something on our evil. We're gonna we're gonna try and do a deal with you on this Iran nuclear deal. This is uh, Les's idea, not mine. To be fair, give us a free pass on Ukraine. Less we want to do, back off. So you know, I don't think this is about our Russians doing better on cyber or not using groups like our evil's nation state proxies, which essentially they are. Uh, they they specifically may or may not be. I tend to think they are, but they may or may not be. Um, but all these groups, no, nothing happens in Vladimir Putin's Russia. Certainly not major large-scale cyber hacking of U.S. infrastructure providers without Putin signing off and saying it's a good move or the people in his close immediate circle. So I don't buy it for a second. And neither should President Biden. Carmen, what do you think? Is there a chance of real cooperation going on here? Uh, I agree with everything that's been said. Uh, I'd offer just a couple more thoughts to throw in the pot. So it may very well be that uh, in the negotiations uh, that uh, one of the quid pro quos for whatever the U.S. would do or not do in Ukraine would be, or or in Iran, uh, in, in those negotiations, would be for the Russians to go after this, the hackers. So that's possibility. I think uh, it's also a possibility that they were already taken down by the U.S. And this was just as Rob suggests for show. Uh, a third possibility, uh, I'm just thinking through the angles, is that for some reason, our evil has become something that the Russians aren't controlling. 
as well as they would like to control. And perhaps, you know, if they're considering something serious in the Ukraine, maybe they think they need to clear the decks of, of actors who are uh, not completely under their, their control. So it could be it could be a completely reverse angle to the one that we're thinking of. Is there is does anyone take the news at face value? No, <laughs> no. no. No, nothing is ever at face value. Especially when it comes to Putin. Nothing is ever at face value. All right. So normally the way we do the podcast is we talk about two big topics and then at the end kind of talk about the little stories we've been following uh, at the end. I think we've we've kind of uh, turned it upside down this week. We've done some more nuanced stories at the top. Let's go to the big, let's kind of flex from our evil and Putin's machinations into the big story, which is what in the heck is going on between Russia and Ukraine, uh, the Biden administration's positioning, uh, what are the Germans doing, what are, the, what are other Europeans doing, what, what kind of weapons are going in, are troops moving around, ships going from the Baltic to the Black Sea or from the Black Sea to the Baltic. Uh, let's, let's kind of get into uh, what's going on here. Jamil, uh, you've kind of hinted at this before. Uh, Russia has come up with its own nuclear deal template for, for the Iran toxin uh, in Vienna. Do we think this is all connected to what's going on with Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Belarus? Yeah, again, I can't take credit for this, right? You know, Les, this, is, this really is your idea. I, I am buying into it. I, I, I take it that you are not, um, you've, you've identified a really soft spot that I did not see earlier on, uh, which is that um, Russia's trying to get some chits to trade, um, and Iran's one of them, right? Um, and, and the like. And so they're, 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 they're racking them up and they see the Biden administration in a position of trade because they know the Biden administration doesn't want to go to war, won't go to war, clearly over Ukraine, doesn't want to see a conflict on the border. They're bending over backwards. They want a nuclear deal with Iran, right? They, they want Russia to act better in cyberspace. So Putin sees he's got an opportunity here uh, to manipulate the administration and appears to be doing a pretty good job of it. I mean, you've got Blinken going and meeting with Lavrov right as the Russians are amassing 127,000 troops on the border of Ukraine, running military exercises in Belarus and saying, hey, we can work with the Russians on cyber. We can work with the Russians on, on Iran. I mean, it's just, it's just, I mean, it makes us look like clowns and it's working. I mean, Vladimir Putin has done a very good job of making us look very stupid um, and, and continues to do so. And so I do worry that we're going down this road. Um, once again, an administration that isn't sure what it wants out of foreign policy, the third administration in a row to have that problem, Started with the Biden administration, didn't get much better with Trump, and now here they are with under Joe Biden. They don't know what they want. All they know is they want a win, and they're trying to find a win, but they can't seem to find a win, and so they'll do everything they can to either, you know, push back against our friends, try to make friends with our adversaries, you know, and in the middle get completely lost and, and have no real agenda. And so, look, the Germans are a problem, too. Uh, at, least, at least we've cleared the Baltic states to send uh, Stinger anti-air missiles and Javelin anti-tank missiles. The Germans can't seem to get out of their own way and supply Soviet-era Soviet weaponry, artillery, to the uh, to the Ukrainians to use to defend themselves. I mean, it's just crazy. Uh, but again, it's no surprise. It's not like you know our European allies have been the most forward-leaning of anybody when it comes to Russia. And the Germans have a unique relationship with Russia because they're completely dependent upon Russia for oil and heating, uh, natural gas, and the like. Of course, the situation that we could have resolved you know, at, towards the end of the Bush administration, uh, but completely dropped the ball on in that administration. And the follow through in Obama, Trump and Biden has been nothing if not pathetic. Um, and here we are about to tee up a second Nord Stream Russian pipeline. I mean, you know, who's shocked that the Europeans are weak? They have no choice. We made them reliant 
upon Russian oil and uh, Russian natural gas. Rob, uh, let's let's talk. I, I, I want to ask you about the movements on the ground of men and you know personnel and material that are involved in the possible uh, defense of Eastern Europe and even Ukraine. So f- we've seen this crisis coming for months. Uh, the buildup was not a secret. It was almost uh, made public on purpose months ago. Only, only in the past really few hours, maybe uh, 24 or 48 hours, are we hearing about uh, additional U.S. troops possibly going into an Eastern European country like Romania or maybe longer tours of, uh, of exercises in the Baltics and things like that. Uh, other, there may be other things going on with, with the British and, and like-minded allies. We're finally hearing about uh, weapons systems going into those going into Ukraine from the some from the U.S., some from other NATO allies of the United States. Is is this uh, happening in enough time to make a difference for the situation on the ground? In other words, you can't just give someone a javelin and expect them to use it half an hour later when the Russian tank comes down the street. I mean, it you, you the, there's some you know, there's some adoption time required for this. Is, is your, is your, what's your sense about where we stand in terms of preparedness for what's about to happen? We're behind the eight ball. We, we have started way too late and are moving way too slow. Uh, the United States Army, United States Marine Corps, other ground forces uh, across the U.S. military have the ability to rapidly deploy to situations like this. Uh, we have done exercise after exercise uh, used to be called reforger in the in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, where you can flow forces from the continental United States into the European theater. Uh, that, that died off for some good reasons and some mixed results uh, throughout the past 20 years of kind of you know war, global war and kind of ter- or terrorism rather. Um, you know the, those muscles have atrophied over time, and to the army's credit. They've been working hard to reinstitute those muscles, um, but with America's focus shifting to the Pacific, um, some of those things have just not been able to uh, to to been to be realized. We flow we have flowed forces back to Europe at a trickle um, in the past ten years. Uh, I was a part of uh, some of the initial concepts of that when I was with the Fourth Infantry Division, and we were moving small level units into. Um, uh, the Eastern European friendly nations and, and allied uh, treaty nations. Um, we don't have any substantial forces within Ukraine territory proper. Obviously, we we have some mill-to-mill contact. We have some training efforts. Um, but you're right, Les, you can't just hand somebody a javelin, although it is a fairly simple weapon system. Uh, you can't just hand it to them and, you know, say, point and shoot. Um I, I applaud many of our allies who are stepping forward on this. Uh, I mean, even from Spain, for crying out loud, who, you know, has been rather isolationist uh, in the past 15 years, especially after their um, their own uh, homeland um, terrorist efforts that that pulled them out of uh, Afghanistan and, and Iraq. Um, I would like to see a more unified NATO response, and we're getting a bit of that, but then Germany as Jamil alluded to, just like completely flips that on its head. And we wonder, you know, where, where their head is right now and wonder if, if Merkel hadn't stuck around for another six, eight months, we'd be in a better position with Germany leading a stronger effort at this point. Um, So, but let me get back to your question. And that is, we've got to begin demonstrating 
um, support to our allies in 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 the in NATO. Uh, we should be flowing ground forces at the from the United States Army division level and below into Poland, Romania, uh, and and those friendly countries, not as an act of aggression and, and with direct contact towards Russia, but definitely as a demonstration that we can and we will support our allies and our friends uh, around the world. Carmen, I, w- I want to ask you what may be a delicate question for you. And if and if you want to demur, I'm sure Jamil will, will jump in and offer some thoughts. But I want, I want to go to you first with this question. I, I recall during the beginning, the first year of the Trump administration, that uh, the State Department ended up on the sidelines in a lot of ways. And, and a lot of people blamed Rex Tillerson, and perhaps that was unfair, really kind of landed on Trump. And, and in a lot of cases, Trump would end up sending the CIA director, who was then Mike Pompeo, into the crisis situation to be the kind of adult in the room on behalf of the president to solve problems. Then here we are four years later, and it turns out Bill Burns, director of the CIA for President Biden, went first into Europe to talk to uh, NATO and other leaders about what was going on with Russia and Ukraine before Tony Blinken went in. It seems it seems very familiar, doesn't it? Is this what what are your thoughts on this? I I was under the impression the Biden administration would restore the stature and the important role of diplomacy and the State Department in the national security apparatus of the United States. But here it is again, the CIA director, obviously a person of great capability, but perhaps doing something that's outside the mandate of the agency. Yeah, well, it does uh, seem familiar from the previous administrations. One thing I would say that suggests to me, just as the intelligence professional, the fact that Burns is the one that's going out there is that there may be some intel-related aspects of this that are very important. So what could they be? There could be tremendous disagreement or differences of opinion about what are the real indicators that it's go for Russia, for example. Uh, There may be sources and methods that are can only be discussed in a face-to-face meeting. So I don't necessarily think that it means that the State Department is uh, taking a back seat uh, because it may just be for practical reasons that he's the one that's doing it. But of course, Burns was also a diplomat, right? And, uh, you know, maybe he he's like a two-for-one deal. You know, he can speak as the CIA director if there are sensitive intelligence matters that must that we must all agree on before we can take effective action. But he's handy because he knows how to be a diplomat. So that's my take. All right, Jamil, I'm going to give you a, a softball right down the middle here. Uh, over the weekend came news that the U.S. is beginning the ordered departure from the U.S. Embassy in Kiev. Uh, 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 folks who don't need to be there are leaving families, uh, non-essential personnel, that kind of thing. Uh, it recalls uh, six months ago, we were evacuating rather badly Americans out of Afghanistan. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, you know, less uh, obviously another just clear failure of American foreign policy. Um, we told President Putin we did not want Russia invading Ukraine. We were opposed to it. We would impose crushing economic sanctions, including cutting off the new Nord Stream 2 pipeline and preventing from using it. And predictably, Vladimir Putin looked at our threats and said, I think you're a paper tiger. I don't believe you. And if you impose those sanctions, I don't care. Have fun. Do it. I'm going to probably invade Ukraine anyways. 
And here we are, fast forward four months later, since we started saying, hey, don't do this. Uh, and uh, we're now evacuating people from the American embassy, saying, realizing he's about to do it. So I think the takeaway from the Biden administration, unfortunately, is, hey, you know, we did the best we could. We tried really hard, but he was really committed. So let's get everybody out. Let's get home. When it said the takeaway should be, we messed up again. Yet once again, America's failure to defend our allies and scare our adversaries has resulted in what is likely to be uh, another another invasion of a sovereign nation. And by the way, if you're worried about this one, just look over across the Pacific Ocean at China, staring lovingly at Taiwan, thinking, huh, we just sent, you know, 40-some warplanes over Taiwan, Taiwanese airspace. Nobody did anything. Yes, I noticed the two aircraft carriers sitting there with the Japanese. But is Joe Biden really going to get in a war over Taiwan? I think the answer is probably no. Unfortunately, the wrong answer. And even if he is, by the way, it's actually worse because the Chinese, if they don't think we are, maybe maybe think about going in and maybe make a strategic miscalculation that gets us in a worse fight. America wins and our adversaries respond when we're strong, defend our allies, and make our adversaries scared. We have failed to do that for 16 years, and we're going forward thinking, oh, the foreign policy is working great. And it's a failure. Uh, so, you know, I don't quite agree. Uh, I mean, it's possible. That's the explanation. But I would say that uh, it's also possible that we're taking out the dependents and non-essential personnel because we think there's going to be a shooting war. And if there's going to be a shooting war, there's two sides to a shooting war. So I uh, am not sure that it's the hoisting of the white flag. And I've been trying to think there's an episode in history, actually, where an American ambassador refused to accept the uh, orders that essential personnel be evacuated because he didn't think there was going to be a conflict. And he proved to be wrong. I I can't remember the example. If one of you remembers it, let me know. But I I think that whether we're prepared to fight or not, you're going to evacuate dependents and essential personnel. So it's an interesting, interesting signal, but it's a bit ambiguous as to what it really says. I don't disagree with Carmen that the reason we're evacuating is because we expect a shooting war. My only point was our goal was to avoid a shooting war. We have failed at that. That's another fail of American foreign policy. And the reason we failed at that is because we didn't scare Vladimir Putin enough into realizing he would have serious heavy casualties, even if we weren't going to put troops in. We could have armed the Ukrainians much more substantively, as as Rob and Carmen said earlier. We could have trained them earlier. We could have done a lot more. We could have given them a lot more weaponry. We could have forced the Germans to get more engaged. Instead, we didn't do any of those things. We just said, oh, boy, be scared of our economic sanctions. It's the only tool we have. And not shockingly, Vladimir Putin said, go pound sand. All right. Let's do as our kind of our little exit feature here, a unique exit feature this week. We'll do we'll predict what is going to happen between uh, Russia and Ukraine. And I will just preface this by saying this morning, uh, I'm humble bragging here a little bit. I spoke to two former U.S. ambassadors to NATO, one of whom thought Russia would not go into Ukraine. And the other one was fairly certain Russia was going to go into Ukraine. So I do, So I think, and these, let's face it, U.S. ambassador to NATO, you're very concerned with uh, Russian intent and what they're doing and how allies and friends will react. This is, these are folks who pay attention and we're deep on detail and they don't know. So it's, I don't think there is a it's possible to have a correct answer right now, but let's go around the horn and predict uh, whether Putin will go into Ukraine and in what fashion. Rob, let's go to you first. Uh, I predict 
Putin has to go into Ukraine based off of the minor incursion comment during President Biden's uh, news conference. He's an authoritarian. He rules by strength. Uh, if he backs down from this seeming opportunity, uh, he will, in his own mind, in his own psyche, lose face. So he has to do it. Uh, I think he stopped short of Kiev. He probably stays um, to the east of the Ukrainian capital uh, and takes a, additional land uh, on that side of the river. Forgive me, I'm, the river's drawing a blank in my head right now, but uh, I, I definitely Dnieper. see the Dnieper. Thank you. Thank you. I definitely see um, more um, territory being, in effect, uh, controlled by Vladimir Putin in the next, I'll call it five months. Stop short of a, a full half year there. Jamil. Yeah, I think Rob is exactly right. I think that um, we have put Vladimir Putin in a place where he doesn't have a lot of options. I'm actually not positive he actually wanted to go across the border, right? I think that Rob is right. Um, uh, you know, he, he's got virtual control over the Eastern Republics as it stands, the Eastern provinces as it stands. There's really only, only uh, problems to be gained by going in. At this point, though, uh, we've sort of, you know, put him to the test and said, well, you know, you can get away with this. We haven't really made him scared. And so now he has to go across and then it becomes a really complicated situation. And then does he look weak or strong if he doesn't march to Kiev, right? What does that all mean? And uh, we've actually made the situation worse rather than better by our failure to be robust in our response. Um, You know, uh, yet again, the theory of, of America being the friendlier, softer nation in the world and it'll make the world a safer place has once again proven to be wrong. America wins when it's strong. And we have been strong in a long, long time. Carmen. I think Russia invades Ukraine. I think uh, the U.S. and or NATO, but primarily the U.S., will do something that will surprise Jamil and uh, probably Putin as well. Whether or not this ends up having great long-term consequences or not, I can't say. But uh, I think something will happen that will be essentially a dust-up between the Russia and the U.S., which will be very alarming to the world. Well, I, I hope Carmen is right. I hope we actually have the uh, have the, uh, the the courage of our convictions, and and that and that and that Carmen's right that that the U.S. and NATO uh, go force against force against Russia. I, I was hoping we didn't have to go there. I don't think it's the right. I don't think it's the right approach for us writ large. But I now that we're at this point, I think that's the only right answer, and I, I hope Carmen's right. All right, my prediction is no Russian invasion of Ukraine, but U.S. Uh, but Russian troops permanently stationed in Belarus, uh, continued harassment of Ukraine in the cyber and spooky realms by Russia, secret assur- assurances from the U.S. and NATO that we will leave Russia alone and not go too close to Ukraine, and a really weak nuclear deal with Iran that is terrific for Tehran. That is my prediction. So so you think we're going to end up in the same place we are today. Basically, nothing will change. Except, um, except that we will except be... Except it's except much that, worse. Yeah, nightmare. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnetsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Marissa Kelberman for research assistance, and Ruth Zhou for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.